So I'm going today for the message, um, build on what Amanda did in her recent sermon series with my one word. Uh, it actually fit pretty well as I roll into, roll into this, um, this sermon. And I, some of the words that I've heard from leadership have really uh, fit well, and I want to share some of those. I, I also will share my word. I don't know if you all have come up with your own, if you've thought about that, if you've reflected on it, if you've picked one. Uh, but what I challenge you, you know, you could do today is write down your word, um, write down the, the other words that I'm going to give you, and just see where you see that place in the sermon or how your word can be a response to what I share today. Now, what I hope happens from this message today is I'm not, I'm not preaching today. I'm not coming and throwing the hammer down and getting real preachy at you today. I just want to share. I just want to share with you what I've learned um, in my class recently. It was a really powerful class, a lot of great discussion, um, really, really uh, uh, something that, that I took a, a lot of positivity away from, but also learned much from the readings I had. Um, but also some of the experiences I've had uh, in the past with people that I want to share with you. And, and just to simply uh, hope, my hope is that, that you choose to further your own learning, your own education, your own knowledge of what I share, um, that you kind of join in this journey that I'm on. Um, it's, been, it's been fun. It's been, it's been, I, I resisted seminary. I resisted it. I didn't, it's hard time-consuming. I got family. I got a ministry. I got all this going on. I got to put time in to do this and do it well, but it's been one of the best things I've, I've done in, uh, in a while, um, and so I'm very thankful to do it. So the words I'm going to share with you come from Amanda Martin and Shelley Lovett, um, Martin Paget, Shelley Lovett, Amanda, uh, Martin being our board chair, Shelley being our vice chair, and their three words that they picked were open, grace, and grow. Open, grace, and grow. And you can ask them who picked what, but that's where their three words. And the word I picked for myself was the word just. Uh, and, and I was kicking around a bunch of words, and that's the one that just I really landed on. And so I went to the dictionary, because I always like going to the dictionary, looking up, what does the dictionary tell me the word just means? And the word just is based on or behaving according to what is morally right and fair. Uh, let's see if I get Brandon to click me on there. Put that first slide for me, Brandon. What is morally right and fair. For some reason, this is really speaking to me. Go one more. This, this visual came up for me. Um, the difference between equality and equity. There's a difference between equality and equity. Sometimes the, the just thing, the morally right and fair thing, isn't always that somebody gets the exact same thing. It's about putting people on a level playing field, a level platform. What does that look like in my community? What does that look like in my ministry? What does that look like in the church? What does that look like uh, in my encounters and how I move and and, and work with people and talk to people and, uh, and live out my daily life with people. What is the just thing to do? So that's, that's something that, that's really affected me in recent years. And it's something I'm going to focus on this year. So I want to share some of the books that I've actually read for class to kind of get us started. 
Um, the first one I read was this book called The Christian Imagination. Uh, it's pretty, pretty deep. I had to read it, to go back and kind of read a little bit here, a little bit there, because it, it's pretty academic. It's pretty deep, but very powerful book, very powerful book. And it talks about the theology and the origins of race. It goes back to colonial days. It goes back to when colonialism and, and people were going into Africa, capturing individuals and enslaving them. And to read those stories, I'm not going to lie, reading some of those stories were fairly emotional. There was some firsthand accounts from people who were the colonists and what they saw uh, in this process of enslavement, and also from an individual that was torn from his home, enslaved, put on a ship, and sent to the New World, which is now America. And reading his account was something I've never read before. And I'm going to tell you, it, it hit. It hit deeply. Uh, to read about that. But what this alludes to also is the role that Christians in the church played in this, that they thought what they were doing was correct. It's interesting to go back hundreds of years and, and, and read about this history, uh, because I think we could agree now in today's time, whoa, absolutely not. But the way they viewed black bodies in that day is they viewed black bodies as being sinful. That's why their bodies were black. That they were not blessed by God. That they had uh, did something wrong, which is why they have the skin color they have. That white is pure, that white is good, that white is blessed, and white is supreme. White is right. That's what they believed. So they could justify their enslavement. It's like, ugh. And that's how they interpreted scripture and religion. The Pope at that time said it was okay to do this. Ugh. And the thing is, we fast forward to today's time, this still is present. White supremacy is still a thing. Is it not? It is still a thing. People still view people with black and brown bodies as not being worthy, of not being equal, not being good, that only white is right, that white is the purest and best race of all. We still see that today. So as much as I, as I read that, hoping that, well, times are different, ah, I don't know. I, I may have to disagree. It's, it is different. But seeds were planted hundreds of years ago, and those seeds have produced really nasty weeds. And as you know, if you garden, you've got to pluck the weeds. Well, they come back, don't they? Weeds come back. you got to keep plucking them. You've got to plant good seed. But it's constant work, and it's constant work to be done. So we have to think about what's our response as a church when we see something like white supremacy pop up. What do we do? What's, our, what's my response as a Christian? What can I do in the context of my life and my ministry to enact some sort of positive transformational change? I mean, first of all, I have to be open to the experiences of my black and brown-bodied friends. I have to hear their struggles. I have to be open to that. I have to allow that to change me and affect me. I have to be able to um, have the courage to take that, that step and speak out against the injustice or the hate that I see 
from something like white supremacy. There's been a call on ministers to speak out against it. The fact that, that ministers have to be challenged to even speak up against it says something. That shouldn't even be a, shouldn't even be a thing. That's wrong in so many ways. But it's definitely a place, it is definitely something we have to do. It's something that I know I have to do. I have to be willing to take this big step. I have to move into solidarity with people in the black community to do work alongside them, to bring justice, to defeat injustice, whatever that would look like. Because to do the just thing, again, it's not always the popular thing. It's not always the thing that's the easiest thing. I think we learned this in Jesus', in Jesus work. It's not, it's not always going to put you in a good spot. You may end up on a cross, but it's the, it's the right thing. And I don't know. I don't have a solution for you or for the church. It's just something I want to plant. It's just something I want to I plant a good seed and see for yourselves. Where do you think you can, can join in solidarity? with individuals? Where can you speak up and offer your place of power or privilege um, or voice? I am a white, straight man. I have a certain privilege in this world that allows me to speak up in certain ways that maybe others cannot. I should take that seriously. I feel and, and use that platform. So something to think about. Another book I read. This one called Brown Church. It's really good. This is based on the Latin American church. Uh, it talks a lot about liberation theology. Liberation theology started in the 1960s. Um, and I identify a lot with liberation theology. Like I have been studying it and learning about it. And of all the theologies in, that I could probably identify with, that's probably the one I most identify with. What liberation theology says is that God is closest to the poor. God is closest to those that are um, on the ends of oppression and injustice. That's where God is most present uh, in doing the work. And for some of us who are like, man, what, God, what about me, man? Like, you know, I mean, I struggle too, you know? Like, I have hardships too. Where are you at? I, I kind of look at like the lost sheep uh, parable, right? Uh, what God is searching for the lost sheep, the one, the one who is uh, lost not only in faith, but this could also be somebody who is um, on the hands of an injustice or oppression or in bondage or uh, in chain, not the 99 who are good. Let's do the work and get after this one. So I kind of look at that story. I also know the story of Exodus is at the core of liberation theology. That's probably the main scripture when people escaped slavery in Egypt. God is a liberator. What can we liberate ourselves from? Who needs liberation? It's also a little different than Christian evangelicalism. Uh, Christian evangelicals typically believe that rich are blessed. They're blessed by God, but that the poor uh, has done something sinful to cause them to be poor. Uh, so liberation theology kind of pushes up against that. You're going to have a natural tension with that, um, a natural back and forth that's not going to always be in agreement. Um, and, I, and I side more with liberation theology, uh, and I look at the prophets. The prophets talk a lot about this, of, of 
just how people are at the injustice of the courts. They're suffering due to the injustice of the courts, the powers at B, the overtaxation of that time of the poor, the unfair taxation that occurred. The prophets speak up about this, and the prophets were always aligned with a king, right? And, and they're always trying to tell the king, hey, man, you know, this ain't right. You got to make some changes. So they had that voice, and I think we've kind of lost that in today's world of having that voice, you know, to speak up against the powers. And the kings chose to have them close by. They wanted to have them close by. So there's something about that effective, collaborative, honest dialogue that's very important, I think, uh, for us. And that's something that we can probably do in our schools, our communities, our jobs with one another inside our own church. When we may have these differences of opinions... Hey, let's look and see, you know, for me, what's the just thing to do? It's okay to have that natural tension. Let's work together instead of constantly opposed. Let's bring it back, change, bring the kingdom to where we're at. The last book I read was this one called Dear White Christians. This is is a really good one. Uh, Also, uh, talked a lot about reconciliation, but also talked about reparations. And you hear a a lot about reparations nowadays. Uh, it's not something I, I know a lot about. Um, and so I was very interested to see about where reparations, where that may have its place in society. Um, and that's a great book. If you don't uh, know a lot about that or you struggle with that, uh, it's a great book to read. But she makes, the author makes a really good point about how reconciliation is not enough. Reconciliation doesn't bring enough equity to people's lives. That there is a reparation, something that has to be paid back for wrong wrongdoings of a past. And for most of us, those wrongdoings, we may not have even been a part of, but we still um, reap the benefits of some of those today. And they kind of equate it to uh, repentance. Reparations can be equated to repentance. It's a form of repentance of past sins, not by us individually, but by a collective system to go back and do something that could be right and correct and bring more equity to people. So it's a challenging read, and it's one that I would um, suggest. And I bring up these books, and I'll I'll get to why I bring these books up here in just a little bit. But they had a deep effect, and they all hit different topics for me. And again, we may not know how we solve things right now, but I do think education... Learning about these issues allows us to grow as people. It's important to be open to learning and be open to learning about these experiences. So, our, uh, And when we do, our faith can grow. I mean, my faith has grown tremendously from hearing from people, from reading these books, from having conversations. And that's why I think the journey is so good and so important for us. It's a, it's a wonderful journey to be on. And it's really opened my eyes and my heart to much, opened my faith up to much. But I also think we've got to recognize part of our own past, our own history in this process. And, and why we're at where we're at today. Uh, just as individuals, maybe as a church, as a community. Um, you know, when you're challenged with something new, uh, challenged with something that may seem, you know, outside of what you've been taught, we have a tendency to get, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, you know, well, that's just how I was taught just how I was raised. It's what my mom told me. It's what my minister told me. 
how, you know, you know, it's how grandma and grandpa grew up, different era, whatever, you know, da, 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 you know, it's, it's just, you know, I came from a different era. I mean, I came from a different era than our youth did. It's hysterical. You wouldn't think, you know, some of you guys think, oh, young enough, but I'm 44 now. 18-year-old kids, man, 16-year-old kids, we're two different eras. So I have to kind of remember that. In the context that I grew up in, I don't know what kind of context you grew up in, but I grew up in a small town, northern Indiana, very small town, under 10,000 people. That town today is still 96% white, less than 1% black. I didn't know anybody of color when I, my first 18 years of my life. It's a fairly conservative town, as most towns in Indiana are. It's pretty conservative, right? And I didn't know anybody in the LGBTQIA plus community. I knew nobody for 18 years of my life. So in that context, I don't know other experiences. I don't know any other people. I don't know any other stories, nothing. I'm not being taught anything else than what that context can provide me, if that makes sense. And we all, we all have that, whatever that would be. And so the first time I met somebody who was black was I went to college. My name was Brian. Yeah. And, and I, and I um, you know, so yeah, Brian, black man, and, and, and I say, and I want to give us, I'm going to get a little, little sideways here, but I want to give us a teachable moment because it's something I've been taught recently. Uh, when we tell stories, and, and this is something I think is very important. Language is very important. Language, we've learned anything in recent time. Language is very, very important. It can do great damage, and it can do great good. Um, and so using proper language when we speak of people. And so a lot of times when we tell stories, we'll say, oh, the black guy, you know, that, my neighbor, the, the black guy here, you know, whatever. And it has nothing to do with the story. If it doesn't have anything to do with the story, don't use a racial term. Because we never say, like, my white friend JC, my white friend you know, Van, my white friend Drew, my white friend Sherry, we, just, we don't say that. And it's about seeing more than just a skin color. Now, I want to throw a little thing on that. It doesn't mean that we don't see color. Right? My, in, one of my, in this class, my professor asked a woman of color in my class, do you ever hope for a day where we don't see color? She said no. Because I want people to lift up the uniqueness of my culture and my race and my ethnicity. I don't want to just blend in like everybody else. There's such, you know, there's such great things that makes her her based on her background. But to also, but to see people as people. But now this story, the fact that Brian's black has something to do with it because he gave me space to ask about racial issues. Because I was like, Brian, I got questions. I've been told stuff. Let me ask you some questions. And he did. It was awesome. And I know I probably offended Brian at times with my questions. But he gave me space and grace and allowed me to do that. And he taught me much. We became good friends. And we were roommates the next year. Those conversations, having people like that is important. When I moved to town, when I was 20 years old, I got a job at Caesars. Anybody knew that? I worked at Caesars for about five years. Um, and I learned a lot at Caesars. I met a guy named Tim. Tim also was, is black, and Tim also gave me space to ask a lot of questions and taught me much. He let me expand all my previous conversations I had with Brian. And I met this guy named David. David is the first gay person I ever met in my life. So again, I said, David, David, I got questions. Never met anybody who's gay. Got questions, David. He's like, all right. He's the only guy in my life who's ever called me, only person who ever called me Chadwick. He's like, all right, Chadwick, what do you got? And so he allowed me that space. And again, I know I probably offended him with questions. 
but I was genuinely curious. I was, I was open. I wanted to be open and receptive um, to learn. But David taught me a really good lesson at six me this day. I could walk into Caesars right now. I could stand at the spot it happened, even though that place has been re- redesigned. And I, I still remember the office. I still remember exactly what happened. This is not a, you know, I'm not proud of this story. But I have to imagine we've probably all done something like this. I was frustrated with my copier at that time. Anybody ever been frustrated with a copier before? Kick it, punch it, whatever. And I said, man, this copier's acting gay. And David goes, what? And I right then I was like, uh-oh. I know I just said something wrong. I know I did. But we've used slurs like that before. I bet we all have. Right? And David said, let me give you a lesson, Chad. How can an inanimate object be gay? I'm like, uh, uh, I, I messed up, I don't know. Um, and so he said, don't use that slur. Just don't. Don't use that. Just say the thing. So I remember this story, and I thought, man, you know what, thank, like, thank you. And I apologize deeply, and like, holy cow, like, you know, I have to be better with my language, because it matters to my friend. It matters to my friend. So I told this story this couple weeks ago at youth. I was like, hey, I want to work on inclusive language. I want to be better with our language. I think the youth can be one of the best groups to start with. So I told them this story. And of course, they laughed like, man, we probably have all said that. Yeah, I know. And we also talked about the use of the R word. I talked to somebody, a church member recently, wants to remove the R word. Like, just frustrated hearing people use that. Even people in church use that. Christians use that word as a slur. I told the youth, I was like, we need to, I want to start with us. I want to enact some change. We need to hold each other accountable. I want to remove that from our lives, remove that from our verbiage. And you know what? The youth have just stepped up and are like, yeah, cool. Let's do it. You're right. Like, it sounds good. Like, we all know what's wrong. Let's, let's change. And the next week they came back for youth and they were talking about how they were holding each other accountable when they did make little mistakes with it. When they would use the R word or they would say a slur that they shouldn't say, like, hey, you know, can't remember, you can't say that. And they we're accountability partners. I thought that was great. That's great collaboration. That's giving grace to each other. That's being open. That's not just beating somebody up for a mistake. That's saying, you know, we want to change. It's going to take time. Let's work together. It matters. So again, I share that story. It's not a great story. It's embarrassing. It can probably get me in trouble. It's a true story, though, and I want to be better. I think we all do. So I had to offer myself some grace. We all do. Because of our past context and history, we, we carry certain things with us, and we have to do the same for others. We all don't come the same way. We all don't have the same experiences. We, and we just may not know. I mean, we just may not know. But I read a quote um, that said, if we lose the ability for collaboration and dialogue, we lose Christian participation and liberation. So we have to collaborate. We have to converse. It's important. And none of this has anything necessarily really to do like with me. Like I'm not teaching anything. What I'm doing is I'm passing on some teachings from others. Like I know David has no idea how much that encounter affected me. No idea. Twenty some years ago. No idea. And yet here I am telling it to a room of five people. 
however many are online, and maybe you share a similar experience with somebody else. The reach can be great. We, we may not realize how that one-on-one encounter, we may be like, eh, what kind of real work am I doing? Am I really making a change? Man, you have no idea. You planted a seed, a good seed in somebody, a good seed for change, for positive change, for transformational change. And that can bear really good fruit. So I appreciate David and Tim and Brian so much for that. There's another quote I read that said, there's no such thing as neutral education. Education either functions as an instrument to bring conformity or freedom. So I thought about that. What we learn can keep things the way it is. We don't change what we say. We don't change how we interact with people. We don't change how we look at individuals. We cannot change even in the midst of learning. Or we can. And we can create a more inclusive table, move more lovingly and respectfully for other individuals. All right? It's very important. You know, we talk about welcoming all to the table, building a longer and wider table. I think it starts with education, and it also starts with language. So one of the things I want to ask of the church in response to my message, and it stems from a project I just did recently about solutions to move forward in, in regarding issues of race, issues in the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and what they've also said to deal with some of those issues, you also have to look at women's issues as well. Is I would love in our library to have a solid collection of books regarding all of those topics. A solid collection that anybody can come and read and learn together that they can discuss the books, that they can um, have one-on-ones, whatever, into, into joining the journey of just learning right now. I asked a few of our youth members who have since graduated, they're adults now, recently come out. So I had recently asked some youth members who um, have graduated or adults, what w- who have come out, what would it mean if you walked into a church and you saw in the library books regarding LGBTQIA plus issues? They said it would mean the world. It would mean that this is a place that may be safe for me to go, that at least they're willing to learn. And they said, you know, it's hard to find a place like that in Indiana. It's hard, and they don't know where they can go. It's also why it's important to, to show that, state that for people so they know, hey, come here and worship. We're a safe spot for you. And they said it would mean the absolute world to them. And why some of us may struggle with those kinds of issues. We may struggle with race issues. We may, we may have a, 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 a thought of, you know, where, where a woman's place is in church, or we just may not always understand a woman's place. You know, reading and educating, like I can't write any serious paper in school by using the internet. Not any serious paper. Too much junk on the internet. 
You have to read good books. So I want to offer that to the church. It's just to be part of this journey and join in with me on this journey. There was something I read the other day, and I wish I could tell you what it was, but it was regarding a race issue. And I've read about this term for like eight different books that I've read. It took the eighth book to finally click with me. And I wish I could remember what it was, but I was like, I told Steph, I was like, I got it. I finally got it. It just takes time, but it's, a, it's worth it. And the other one is to work on inclusive language. I have to do a big project coming up in March regarding inclusive language. And we talked about this this morning in our elders meeting. Language um, for people who are at home who need care from us, prayer, visitations, whatever form. And we've used the term shut-ins before. We've used the term homebound. But I have a professor named Dr. Askew. And Dr. Askew is a woman. She's also in the LGBTQIA plus community. And she specializes in disability theology. Very knowledgeable. Checks a lot of boxes. And she said, use people-first language, Chad. Use people-first language. It's people of color. It's people with disabilities. Not disabled people. It's people with disabilities. They're not homebound. They just may need a visit. So they're people at home. We talked about changing our list to just stay, simply state that. They're people at home. And how that may expand our reach of people. But as our young people are finding out in classes, and as I had to do in college, respecting people's pronouns, doing away with slurs, racial slurs, slurs against people who are disabled, slurs against people in the LGBTQIA community. You know, we need to be better as individuals, as a church, as Christians. And so part of this project is to work on an inclusive language policy. And not a policy to beat anybody up or make people feel bad, but a policy just simply to teach us, just to learn. So I want to invite anybody in the church to join me in that. I have to do a lesson on it. I have to teach about it. And even inclusive terms for God, not always using the term he for God, but looking at other terms for God. And that's not one I'm well-versed in. I'm going to be learning more about it. So join me in that. I'm asking you to join me in this. I'm, I'm interested. I'm curious. I want to learn more about it. I want to hear uh, what you all have to say. I want to hear your feedback. You know, I'm looking for people who, who want to be a part of this experience with me. I have found great value in it. And I want you, uh, if you want to, to join me in. I want to invite you into that. I think this matters. I think these issues matter. Paul says that there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no man or woman. Right? We're all one in Jesus Christ. I believe that's Galatians 3.28. Join me on this journey to build a bigger, more inclusive table in this church. To open your hearts, to learn more, to love better, to love more, to respect people more. It's a it's a wonderful journey to be on. It's one that I think God calls us to be on. And I hope you do consider it in joining me this year in this. I appreciate the support you've given me, the, the chance to preach this kind of sermon, the space to do this, uh, the opportunity to grow as a person as a, and a minister. Um, it's been really valuable. So I do hope that you consider that. Amen.